Well, good morning, ladies. I first of all want to thank the worship team, Bethany, Kyla, and Sarah. You always point our hearts to the Lord and prepare us for this, this time together in the Word. I also want to thank Lynn for the missionary moments and how you tell us about our missionaries all around the world. That's Sonia, and I like chocolate too. <laughs> and then for Chelsea and the sound, for Nair and Joshua, thank you all so much for your ministry back there. And of course for the ministry team that does all the behind the scenes work in putting together these <clears throat> Bible studies and all the events for women's ministry. <clears throat> we thank you all very much. Well, good morning ladies. When I started this, I thought, welcome to the second teaching lesson of Titus 2. And we're so happy to see each of you this bright September morning. <laughs> That's when the sun was incessant. But now we have a nice cloudy morning, which I'm thankful for. Fall's not here yet, but it's soon to arrive, and we hope with it brings rain and corresponding cool temperatures, which we're seeing a glimpse of now. Well, last month... Crystal gave us an historical portrait of who Paul was from the book of Acts and a little bit from the book of Philippians, the epistle that he wrote <clears throat> that we'll be studying this year. As we study this book, we'll learn of Paul's love for the Philippians. The letter reveals the most loving and endearing relationship that Paul has for them and they for Paul, and many believe it to be the church closest to his heart. This is one of the epistles that Paul wrote from prison, known as a prison epistle, and we've all heard of that. We also know that Ephesians, Colossians, the little book of Philemon, and of course the Philippians were all written while he was in prison. Paul wrote this book on his second missionary journey, and it was the first church that he established in Europe. God led him to Macedonia, a Roman colony, where he landed in Philippi, a leading city in Macedonia. There was no church or synagogue there, only a small settling of Jews. Well, Paul and Timothy on the Sabbath went out of the city gate to the riverside, supposing there would be a place of prayer. A woman named Lydia, a seller of purple fabrics from Thyatira, we all have heard of her. She was a worshiper of God, and she was the first convert in Europe. When she heard Paul teach, the Lord opened her heart, and she responded to the things he had spoken and was saved. She was a worshiper of God, but she didn't know about Jesus, and that's what she learned from Paul. <clears throat> also in Philippi, a young slave girl having a spirit of divination and a Roman jailer also heard the gospel and were saved. You can learn about their accounts that are profound in Acts 16. And we learn that Paul um, had with him Timothy, which he referred to as his true son in the faith, or true child in the faith in 1 Timothy. And over the years, I've heard Philippians' theme to be joy and unity, living the Christian life, and joy in true fellowship, all of which apply, as we will learn when we study this little but vital book. Well, the key word is joy. And John MacArthur contrasted it with happiness. And he said that happiness is an attitude of satisfaction or delight based on some present circumstance. Happiness is related to happenstance or circumstances tied to an occasional happening or occurrence that can't be necessarily controlled <clears throat> or maintained and is often elusive but not so with joy. He expounded further by saying, joy is found in Christ and comes from God to those who believe in the gospel. Joy is produced by the Holy Spirit as believers receive and obey the word. Joy is mixed with various trials in life, and joy brings the hope of future glory. <clears throat> you see, joy is not elusive or passing. And he summarized by naming or listing a quote that he found that he really loved, and I do too, and I think he will as well. Joy is the flag that flies on the castle of the hearts when the king is in residence there. 
Isn't that neat? I'll say it again. Joy is the flag that flies on the castle of hearts when the king is in residence there. So open your Bibles to Philippians 1. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses this morning, which we're going to read now. So if you have your Bibles open, you can follow along. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you with all of the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Okay. So verse 1, Paul introduces himself as Timothy, he and Timothy as bondservants of Jesus Christ. And notice that Paul didn't identify himself as an apostle here, which he does in many of his other letters. And since he had established the church, they knew of his credentials and needed no further affirmation of who he was or the qualifications that he possessed. And this is just another indication of the intimate relationship that this church had with Paul. Timothy was the one, Timothy was with him when this church was established. However, Paul is the sole human author of this book. Benjamin Jowett is an English scholar and theologian, and he said of Paul and his protege, it is the union of springtime and autumn, of enthusiasm and, an exper and experience, of impulse and wisdom, of tender hope and quiet and rich assurance, when speaking of Timothy's youth and the wisdom that comes with Paul's age. Well, describing themselves as bondservants gives a clear picture of who Paul and Timothy were in relationship to Christ Jesus. This label designated them as servants of Jesus, indicating a submissive dependence upon their Lord and a willingness to serve him and be his servant without reserve because they remembered that we are not our own. 1 Corinthians 6.19, verse 20, the passage reads, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And we know when we read Paul's accounts that he certainly did that. And ladies, that means that we too are to show God's character and righteousness in our bodies, using them to glorify him and bless others and for the good of the saints. You know, if we're not a slave to God and righteousness, we are a slave to Satan and sin. Romans 6, 17 through 18 says, Having been freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. And true freedom is found only in Christ. Let me ask you, whom are you a slave to? Christ or Satan? Do the deeds of your body reveal righteousness or betray that of a pattern of sin? Well, the recipients of this letter are the saints of Christ Jesus, and it includes the overseers, which is also known as the elders, and the deacons. And the word saint means holy ones or set-apart ones because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. All believers in Christ are referred to as saints because of their faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And each one here this morning who believes in Jesus is a saint whether you feel saintly and act saintly or not. 
I'm speaking for myself. <laughs> Notice the order of Paul's, Paul's salutation, mentioning the saints first and then the leaders of the church, suggesting that the overseers and deacons exist for the people, not the people for them, according to Zondervan. You know, there is an order for church governance through submission to the elders and deacons, which contribute to the smooth running of God's church, but the emphasis here is the people of God, his chosen saints. Well, verse 2, Paul's common greeting in many, if not most, of his books is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I read that this familiar blessing combines both Greek and Hebrew expressions that makes them thoroughly a Christian greeting. God's grace is his favor extended to us in salvation and essential for us to grow and to mature and is freely given without regard to merit or, or our earning it. The peace that comes as a result of that favor and grace that he bestowed upon us is a reconciliation with God which brings an inner tranquility keeping us settled and confident of our relationship with him and confident of our eternal destiny as well, but it also carries with it contentment and peace even in the midst of trials and turmoil. We also have a peace that transcends into our earthly relationships. And the source of these blessings is in this passage from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're here Paul is proclaiming and declaring deity. God and Jesus are one. Then Paul proceeds to give reasons for writing this letter to his beloved church in verse 3, thanking God for them in his every remembrance of them. And this too was a pattern in his letters, that of giving thanks as well as offering his prayers on the behalf of others. But this particular thanksgiving came from memories that Paul had of these Philippian friends. And joy is used multiple times in this book, as is rejoice. <clears throat> when I first started studying, I got a number from one commentary, and I thought, I'm going to just check and make sure he's right. So I counted him, and I came up with a different number. And so I thought, well, I must be wrong. So I counted it again, and I came up with a still different number. So I thought, well, forget that. <laughs> So then as my study progressed, I found another comment. It came up with a totally different number. So guess what? I'm not giving you a number this morning. <laughs> well, by thanking God, which should be an element in our every prayer, it encourages us to give him praise and to acknowledge that every gift, every mercy, and every blessing comes from his hand. It keeps our focus on our Heavenly Father, that's exactly where it should be. And Paul's example should prompt us to thank God for the kindnesses of others, for their prayers and blessings, for their gifts and love as we benefit from them, recognizing that all the glory and praise belongs to God as he moves in the hearts of those that bless you. Have you ever been comforted or encouraged by another? Well, thank God for his provision to you through this saint as well as enjoying the many blessings that comes from being a part of the family of God that we have right here. And better yet, you seek to be the blessing and comfort to another that can be used by God. Well, verse 4 continues, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. You know, Paul recalls the many times and ways the church at Philippi supported him, and Matthew Henry says... <clears throat> that Paul had been maltreated at Philippi. He had been scourged, he had been imprisoned, and he'd been put in, put in stocks. And perhaps he saw little fruit of his labor at the outset, yet he remembers Philippi with joy. Why do you suppose that was so? Could it be because his children and the faith were there, and in many ways the closest to an ideal or model church that he had planted up to that point? Henry goes on to say that Paul looked upon his sufferings for Christ as his credit, his comfort, and his crown, and he was pleased at every mention of Philippi, the place where he had suffered. I had to ask myself, would this be my attitude if I am persecuted for the cause of Christ? Would my focus be on the work that God accomplished in the midst of 
or because of my trials? Or would my focus be on the trial itself and my personal suffering? Well, can you imagine how the Philippian church must have felt to receive this letter of commendation? How Paul in Roman chains some 800 miles away prayed for them? And after approximately 10 years, Paul's love for them had not diminished as he wrote, thanking God for them in his every thought and prayer. And Paul is addressing all of the believers there. And there is no distinction between wealth and poverty race, gender, creed, or anything that the world might discriminate against. None were excluded from his prayers, coming from a heart of joy, even in his imprisonment as he petitioned God on their behalf. Robert Leitner stated, Paul's hardships made him better, not bitter. They always do one or the other to a child of God. How has will or does hardship affect you? Are you better or bitter? Well, verse 5 further explains Paul's gratitude for their participation in the gospel from the first day until now. That word participation means fellowship, and there was a bond or a partnership between the Philippian church and Paul in the things of Christ. They shared with him in his need, giving of themselves on more than one occasion. And the recent gift was a part of that fellowship, but Paul was filled with joy over the frequent evidence of their sharing in the work of the gospel. And I wonder if part of Paul's joy was founded in the knowledge, too, that those he had evangelized began well, held on, and persevered despite his absence. And I'm sure that that is a great comfort to many pastors and ministers of our day, of our Lord Jesus, as they faithfully preached the word, shepherd their flock, and to know that their labor was not in vain, as the saints continue to persevere in their faith. And that's a call to each of us to heed the teachings of sound Bible teachers and pastors. Well, verse 6 is a reassuring passage that states confidence. He said, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And some translations say God's work among you, and others say God's work in you, and both would be appropriate. God's work begins in individuals when he draws us to himself, when he redeems us and makes us his own, and yet this new life is lived out among believers in our fellowship together. Whether the work is in individual lives or the body of Christ, believers as a whole, it's all God's work. And the work is not complete once one is saved or a church is planted, but continues in and among us until his work is complete, which occurs until the day of Jesus Christ. And only when Jesus returns will God's work be finished. The day of Christ signals the occurrence of the rapture, which is used again in verse 10. Well, as Paul thought about and prayed for the Philippians, he had a settled conviction that what God started earlier in their lives, <clears throat> he was going to complete. What he began at the very beginning, he would most certainly continue on to completion, the good work that he had begun in them. And what a promise and encouragement that is to us. That good work was their salvation and may also have included the fellowship and the sharing of their bounties with Paul, said John MacArthur. And I might add, that applies to us as well, sharing with others what God has blessed us with in the here and now. <clears throat> and that includes exercising our gifts, our money and our possessions, our time, and the myriads of ways that we can share and bless others. And as we stated, the good work refers to salvation begun at their conversion. And I read that God not only initiates salvation, but continues it and guarantees its consummation at the glorious coming of our Lord Jesus, the day of Christ, otherwise known as the rapture. And that is a time when Jesus returns for his church and we will be caught up in the air, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, salvation is finally completed everyone's work is examined at the bema seat of god and believers will be rewarded 
Now here in verse 7, we learn more perceptively of Paul's heart for these believers at Philippi, validating his right to feel as he does about them, every one of them, since in his imprisonment they prayed for him, they supported him, and provided by giving, by giving to meet his needs. And this was a unified and coordinated effort on their part, like-minded believers coming together to share what they had with one they loved who had needs. And they were not ashamed to be associated with this man in chains and participated with Paul in what God was doing through him, which was primarily sharing the gospel. The news, or the good news that Paul was sharing just manifested in what he was able to do through the love of the Philippians. That deep love Paul had for the Philippians are the affections of Christ being produced in his life by the Holy Spirit. And I have to ask you, are other believers really in your heart? You know, an old pastor of mine said it's easy for us to grow old and cranky as believers. We sit and soak and sour rather than sit, soak, and serve. You know, and at times it's easy for other believers to get on our nerves. But we have to ask ourselves, do we really love them? 1 Peter 4.8 says that we are to keep fervent in our love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. We are to have love for one another so that the world will know us by our love, according to John 13.35. And we need to love because God first loved us in 1 John 4.19. And those words ought to be the mantra of our lives and resonate in our hearts and minds that love is supreme and we are to show the love of Christ in our attitudes, in our deeds, in our words, in our giving, in our prayer life, and our care for one another. This exemplified the Philippian church. Now, there were some issues that Paul will address later in, the, in this letter, as they're not perfect. They were simply sinners like you and I are, but they were dearly loved by Paul. Well, there are two main areas here in view suffering and his ministry for the gospel. In both of these, the Philippian church are partakers with Paul. Koinonia is the Greek word with a preposition in front that means fellow partakers of grace. The grace of God is involved in their suffering and the grace of God is involved in their ministry of the word. And for the apostle Paul, both suffering and ministry are two privileges that believers have. He wrote in verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And we all know that suffering comes in many different ways as the Lord deems best, but we need to have the right heart and attitude if he calls us to suffer for his sake. And there are also two key aspects of Paul's ministry here, both legal terms, defense and confirmation. And the defense has a more negative connotation. Are there those who that challenged and attacked Paul's ministry? His defense was the proof of the gospel. Believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God is the reason for Paul's defense, which is the heart of the gospel. And we all know 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 to be the gospel in a nutshell. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that to more than 500 brethren. The heart of that message is God's provision for the sin of mankind. 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15 says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asked you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Well, the word defense is, in a sense, apologetics, not apology as we know it, but offering a reasoned explanation for the faith that is in us. 
An example was of Paul who employed the term apologia at his trial speaking before Festus and Agrippa when he boldly said, I am about to make my defense before you today in Acts 26.2. His was a formal speech or explanation in reply to or to rebut the charges thus defending the gospel and he was giving a reasoned explanation and I went and read that chapter it is an excellent read so I suggest that you would go revisit that account Acts 26 then let me ask you if someone challenged your faith in Jesus Christ would you be able to give a reasoned biblical defense for your faith could you offer evidence from the word of God for why you believe what you believe? You know, God tells us to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season. And the gospel should be woven in our testimonies so that when we share how God saved us, it should be evident how God did that. You know, we can give detailed accounts of many things in our lives. We know details of fashion and design. We know details of recipes, even politics. And guys know amazing sports stats. But when it comes to our faith, which is of eternal significance, we find it difficult to explain why we believe what we believe. And I encourage you to make it your priority to be able to give a reasoned explanation or defense from the scriptures of the faith that you have in your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, the word confirmation in this verse simply establishes the gospel. The coming of Christ confirms and settles the promises that God gave in the Old Testament. We have been established until the day of Jesus Christ, and that is settled. It is a done deal. Hebrews 6.16 says, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation and is an end of every dispute. There's no arguing, indicating a legal term coinciding with defense. Well, the defense and confirmation of the gospel was shared by the believers at Philippi, and they were partakers of God's grace with Paul. And that is the same kind of ministry that you and I should have. We are to be defending the gospel, able to offer a reasoned explanation for our faith that was a gift from God. Then we're to have that positive ministry of establishing and settling the good news into the hearts and minds of others so that it might take root take hold and mature. W.E. Vine wrote, the gospel both overthrows its foes and strengthens its friends. One commentator wrote concerning the events in our lives that God's not conducting an experiment. He is carrying out a plan. And that should be a great comfort to us to know that when things come into our lives that are unexpected and that we don't even like, they're all part of God's perfect plan for you and me different but specific to what God desires to accomplish in each of us. We see that in the sufferings of Paul and what those trials ultimately accomplished, we see the furtherance of the gospel. And just consider how far-reaching all that Paul endured was reaching to us today. Paul's suffering was a motivation for his friends in Philippi to undertake on his behalf assistance that would encourage and help him. And among among believers, we too are to reach out and minister to fellow saints, showing love, specifically overflowing with the love of Jesus that spills over into being used by God to care for or meet the needs that are present in our midst and even in those that are far away. <clears throat> well, let's move on to verse 8 where Paul says, God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You know, it's been said that this deep longing and affection, and affection are not natural to man, and it's only able to be manifest because Christ was producing in Paul the fruit of love by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And only God could truly vouch for Paul's feelings about his Philippian friends, and the same is true for you and me. Our Sovereign Father knows our minds, He knows our hearts, He knows what we think, He knows what we feel, 
He knows our words and our thoughts, our words before we even speak them in Psalm 139. He is omniscient, and nothing is hidden from him, according to Luke 8, 17. And Paul remarks that he longs for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. Now, all is used seven times in these 11 verses and indicates an inclusiveness. I'm pretty confident of that number seven. But if you want to count and tell me I'm right, come tell me. But if I'm wrong, don't bother. <laughs> well, this longing was with the affection of Christ Jesus. <clears throat> it literally means the bowels of compassion which are in Christ Jesus for poor souls like you and I, you and me. It was that compassion that brought salvation to you and me. And the term bowels means the heart, the lungs, the vital inward parts deep within. And it's noteworthy that Paul's longing to be with his friends in Philippi is an expression of God's work in his life. <clears throat> the Believer's Commentary said that Paul was born a Jew and was writing to the people of Gentile descent. The grace of God had broken down the ancient hatred, and now they were all one in Christ. Isn't that neat? And the same should be true for us today. Well, thus far, we have been reading of Paul's affection and of his appreciation for the Philippian believers, telling them of his prayers for them and his confidence in God's grace to complete the work he began in them at their conversion. Now in verse 9, Paul's prayers of thanksgiving give way to prayer for their spiritual growth, that their love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. The word abound more and more here gives an image of overflowing. You picture a glass of water filled clear to the brim, and then you add more water till it runs over. And our love for one another should abound more and more, or overflow, as love is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 succinctly spells out what, would, what we should be manifesting in ourselves and towards others as a result of the love that God has put within us, enabling the power of the Holy Spirit to use these graces that can be ex exercised properly as we look at 1 Corinthians 13. Now think about this. If we exhibit love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, then the Holy Spirit will enable us to exercise true love. And we look at 1 Corinthians, what is true love? Well, love is patient and kind, and it's not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly or seek its own and is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. Can you imagine how precious our fellowship would be in this place if we, each one of us, took seriously these, these graces from Galatians and put them into practice in our own personal lives? You know, it's not by accident that love was listed first here in Galatians. And our Corinthian passage ends with verse 13 saying, the greatest of these is love. And we can do the greatest things, the sweetest things, but if we do not have love, we are like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal that we read about in the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. So now we need to cultivate a love that abounds more and more. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Paul requests and exhorts in the Lord Jesus, the Thessalonians, that as they received instruction as to how they are to walk and please God, which they actually do walk, he said, but that they excel still more. And that is what Paul is telling the Philippians here in verse 9, that their love abounds still more and more. And that applies to us as well. No matter how well we think we may be doing, there's always room for improvement to do better, to excel still more. And the best thing that we can do for others, for fellow believers and unbelievers alike, is to pray for them. Concern for others should first express itself in prayer, recognizing God's influence in each situation in each person. And that should be our first thought and action to pray. 
Pray shows, prayer shows our faith and trust in God to handle whatever and whomever we entrust to his care. <clears throat> now, just an aside, I'd like to share with you how effective prayers of the saints can be in a very simple example that I experienced firsthand not long ago. When our youngest son and his family were preparing to return to their mission field a few weeks ago, during their last day at VBS here at church, I watched each one, my heart being heavy at the thought of saying goodbye. <clears throat> being at church as they finished up VBS, they needed to fly out of Dallas within two and a half hours after VBS ended that day. Well, the car we had seated only seven, so I stayed back as Gary took them to the airport. <clears throat> my goodbyes were to be hasty, which I knew they would have to be, because of time constraints, and I was determined not to fall apart uh, and shed a lot of tears. I told myself I will let down later. Well, that morning, knowing of the separation that was coming, three dear ladies told me in different encounters they would be praying for me <clears throat> at that time that we would be saying goodbye. Well, the time had come hugs and kisses, and yes, tears with restraint were shed by most, with Trevor gently reminding me of God's plan for them and that of the quiver and arrows from Psalm 127. They got into the car, drove off with blowing kisses and waves of goodbye, and me knowing that it would likely be at least four more years before I would see them again. So I hastened to my car where I could let down and have my crying jag. <laughs> Not wanting anyone to see me, I do not cry pretty, I decided to drive to Costco. <laughs> well, that's funny. <laughs> there I parked our car, put my head on the steering wheel, and thought about the events of the day, with heavy heart and tears welling up. Then Trev's words of God's will and purpose for them came to mind, and the thought of three ladies praying for me probably at that very minute brought me back from the brink of a pity party to the realization that all of this is God at work in our kids' lives and through the prayers for me of precious warriors. How could I indulge myself when my kids were willing to follow his lead and then to dishonor the prayers of those ladies who were praying and God was willing to answer? Well, all this to say that the reality of praying saints brought peace and comfort to my heart that day. And I was able, by God's grace and praying saints, to avoid a sad and selfish letdown or crying jag. So I dried a few tears, gave thanks to a faithful father, and still to this day relish in the joy of answered prayer from dear ladies who knew my heart and carried my burden that day. I got out of the car, it was warm, I walked around. Costco aimlessly till Gary returned. So, all this to say, do not discount the value and effectiveness of prayer for even the smallest thing and the big things, of course. The effective prayer of a righteous man, and in this case, a righteous woman, can accomplish much, according to James 5:16. You see, prayer is an act of obedience that evidences love, love for God and love for others. Now back to our passage. Paul is calling the Philippians to learn more about the one they have come to love, the Lord Jesus. And Barclay wrote that love always is the way to knowledge. If we love any subject, we'll want to know more about it. If we love any person, we'll want to know more about him or her. If we love Jesus, we'll want to learn more about him and his word. And if we truly love Jesus, we will be sensitive to his will and desires. And the more we love him, the more we will instinctively shrink from what is evil and do what is right. Well, you've heard the old saying that love is blind. Well, real love is not blind. It will enable us to discern right from wrong, and real knowledge will give us discernment to know truth from error. And love should not be at the expense of knowledge, nor knowledge at the expense of love. They function together in our relationship with Christ. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 warns against knowledge without love, that we should have knowledge without love because knowledge without love puffs up or makes arrogant. You know, true Christian love is not manufactured by us, but is the work of the Holy Spirit 
and he does the work in me as I submit to him. Romans 5, 5b says, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now Paul in verse 10 gives his reasons for his prayers for abounding love, knowledge, and discernment for his Philippian friends. It's so that they may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Now that word approve means to put to the test. After conversion, we are called to know that which is excellent, able to discern good from better, better from best, to know that which is superior. And while we are dependent upon God and the Holy Spirit, we have a responsibility to acquire knowledge through the study of the word so that we will be adequate, equipped for every good work according to 2 Timothy 3.17. Well, I'm sure you'd all agree that excellence is our goal as believers. Romans 12.2 tells us not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And Ephesians 5.10 says that I am to put to the test the things that are pleasing to God. We are to examine everything carefully, holding fast to that which is good, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.21, and that standard of measure is God's word. We're to examine, to prove, to put to test all things, much as fire tests metal. Well, Paul continues to build his case. My love is to abound in real knowledge and all discernment so that I may approve the things that are excellent, keeping in mind that discernment is the application of knowledge. And why all of this? So that I will be sincere and blameless until the day Jesus Christ will come in the air and take his church into his very presence. It is at that time that what we call the Bema Seat will take place. You and I will stand in his presence, and God will take into account the lives that we lived here on earth. We will receive rewards or loss of rewards according to how we lived and what we did in our bodies. The believer's works are brought into judgment so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, good or bad, according to 2 Corinthians 5.10. And let me emphasize here that there is no loss of salvation, just a revealing of our motives and our works done for God's glory or for ours. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. <clears throat> if you want to know more about this Bema seat, read 1 Corinthians 13, or 3, verses 13 through 15. Well, our goal is to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, to live my life in light of the fact that he is coming again. And that is to condition everything I do, holding fast to that which is good, why I must be discerning, because I want to be pure before him and blameless until Christ returns. Well, verse 11 goes on to say, Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes from Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see, we are made righteous by grace through faith so that we become righteous. And again, it's all the work of Jesus. What does that righteousness look like in the life of a Christian? I want you to listen carefully to why we should pursue righteousness. Since God in eternity past set his love upon us, and chose us. Then he sent his only dear beloved son to die in our place to redeem us. And then at the right time, he sent out an effectual or irresistible call through his spirit to make us his own, who incidentally resides or dwells in us now. And on top of all that, God has preserved and given us his word, the Bible, which is living and active. Ladies, we are without excuse for not obeying the call to love, to grow, to mature, to discern and approve that which is excellent in order for us to be sincere and blameless until we are taken up in the clouds the day of Christ. What God our Savior did for us was sacrificial and costly, and we should have that same attitude in ourselves. 
We are to be filled with Christ's character and righteousness. And instead of thinking about what we can get from relationships or how others may bless us, we need to be concerned with helping others grow in their faith and walk. When you come to church and someone's taking your parking lot, a parking spot, or worse yet, you come in and someone is sitting in your seat, how dare they? The tendency is to think how we're being treated rather than how we can contribute to another's growth and development. Too often we may come expecting to receive something rather than coming in love, anticipating how we may bless another. And that's true in our church services, in our Sunday school classes, in our Bible studies, even in our Titus groups. And I might even say even in the four years when we're moving from class to class, just look for ways that you can encourage or bless someone. While we seek to share the gospel or seek to assist another grow in their walk, God will be teaching us selflessness and the blessing of giving and doing rather than receiving. Jesus said in Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And Proverbs 11, 24, 31 speaks of those who give generously will receive more. We cannot outgive God. Yes, he invites our gifts and our offerings, but he will always give us far more than we could ever possibly give him. He will never be a debtor to anyone. However, this is not to be our motive for good works. But as our passage says, all this comes from Jesus Christ and goes to the glory and praise of God. Dr. Ruth said how easy it is to lose sight of the fact that we are a people privileged to live every moment of every day with eternal purposes so that our lives are to be glorifying him, being, bringing praise to him in every way. You know, we can get so absorbed in the mundane worries and concerns of life in this world that we lose sight of actually what really matters. God has told us that there are concrete things involved in bringing glory and praise to himself, and that includes sharing the gospel. That's something we'll never do in glory. And doing what is best for another person. And we touched on that above when we addressed love and how it can be manifested to those around us, thus giving God glory. But our faith in Christ, the hope we have, and the knowledge of the treasure that awaits us in heaven should be increasing as well as bearing much fruit. Colossians 1, 9, and 10 says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, specs, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. <clears throat> Ladies, God is doing something in our lives. He is working so that the righteousness of his character might be produced more and more in each one of us. Hebrews 12 tells us that God uses hard times. He uses the pressures of life and discipline to train us so that as a result, those trials will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness that we read about in verse 11. Trials, pressures, and discipline are some of the means that God uses to produce the righteousness in us that he desires. And we need to remember how in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, God saved us. Then verse 10 goes on to say that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we may walk in them. And Matthew 5, 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And the result is not that others will think more highly of you or think, wow, isn't she a neat Christian? Wow, she's exceptionally good. But the result is that they will glorify our Heavenly Father. John Wesley was moved from Colossians 1.10 to write, Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, to all the people you can as long as you ever can because he saw in scripture that good works are a legitimate tool in evangelism. What we do with our lives is so overwhelmingly important because it is the means that God has chosen to use to glorify himself. 
And that is why it's so crucial that the fruit of righteousness be manifest in us in all that we do. And that comes through Jesus Christ and his sovereign control in my life and my yielding of my will to him and the ministry of the Spirit in me so that the glory and praise goes to God. In closing, these 11 verses spell out for us a portrait of the great Apostle Paul's prayers and what they consist of. An intense thankfulness, a love and longing for those he loved in the Philippian church. And that love was with the affection of Christ Jesus. And then he had an appeal that their love may abound still more in real knowledge and all discernment so that they would be able to approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the Lord takes them home and that their lives have been filled with Christ's righteousness to the glory and praise of God. Sisters, we have before us a beautiful example of what our prayers should consist of for all the saints in Christ Jesus to the praise and glory of God our Father. Now I'll close with this quote from Jerry Bridges. He said, prayer is the most tangible expression of trust in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, heaven is your throne and the earth is your footstool and you dwell in splendor and majesty. We desire that your spirit would reside on the thrones of our hearts. It is our prayer that we exalt your holiness in our lives and bodies to the praise and glory of your name. Lord Jesus, your sacrifice of love enables us through the power of the Holy Spirit to love one another, and he spurs us on to love and good deeds. Lord, give us a genuine love and appreciation for one another and a boldness to share the gospel with others. Might we grow in real knowledge and all discernment so that we may approve that which is excellent in order to be sincere and blameless being filled with the righteousness of Christ until you come to take us home. And in all things, may you be honored and exalted as we fulfill that which you have called us to and anticipating the time when you will come and take us to yourself. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you, ladies. Thank <clears throat>